Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whomever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. We have two amazing guests joining us this week, Deanna Van Buren, the co-founder of Designing Justice, Designing Spaces, and Raphael Sperry, the president of Architects, Designers, and Planners for Social Responsibility. Last week, we left off speaking with Ronald Royale about the border as a form of community and a form of control. And if you haven't listened to that episode, you should. And you can find it on our website at www.socialdesigninsights.com. For the next two weeks, we're examining an adjacent issue, the architecture of incarceration. Our built environment is really just an expression of our shared values. Architects, engineers, planners, and designers form something of a translator for those values into built form. Prisons and courtrooms fill a particular niche when thinking about this issue. Arguably, certain forms of prisons are expressions of a desire to bring social good, harmony, and peace. Their attempts to protect the majority from those that would do them harm. However, other forms of prisons are expressions of punishment, retribution, and vengeance. Certainly, systems of incarceration are easily used to disproportionately punish ethnic, racial, and religious minorities. Designing Justice, Designing Spaces is a U.S. nonprofit that seeks innovations in architecture, design, and real estate development to attack the root causes of mass incarceration, which they believe to be poverty, racism, lack of access to resources, and the criminal justice system itself. They work to oppose social inequalities present in the dominant architectural models of courthouses and prisons by co-creating new prototypes such as peacemaking centers, mobile villages, and housing for foster-age youth. In their work, they believe we need to fundamentally upend our own notions of justice and that design and building can be the vehicle for doing so. Architects, Designers, and Planners for Social Responsibility is also a U.S. nonprofit. It was begun in the early 1980s and was first established to promote nuclear disarmament and correct the imbalances caused by military excesses overshadowing domestic needs. Throughout the 1980s, the nonprofit initiated numerous peace projects, including peace parks, conferences, exhibits, and citizen diplomacy exchange programs with the former Soviet Union. More recently, ADPSR has been leading the charge to get the American Institute of Architects to adapt ethical rules, which would prevent members from designing spaces intended for execution, torture, solitary confinement, and other spaces designed for cruel and inhuman punishment. The results have been mixed, and Raphael will explain a bit more about this when we get to the second half of the interview, coming on February 8th. I asked them both to come on the show and talk to us about the complexity of these issues and how their work challenges our notions of justice in space. I believe that design complexities around the issue of incarceration hold up a mirror to our broadest questions about what it means to be a designer in pursuit of social good. But you didn't come here to hear me talk, so let's get into it. Deanna, Raphael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us and lending us your time. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's exciting. (laughs) Uh, I'm glad you think so. Uh, we're excited because we're tackling this issue of resistance and it's a brand new 2018. And, you know, we, we've gotten together all these big brains and including the two of you to talk about how design can act as a form of resistance. And, you know, the two of you have been active in, in issues of incarceration, design, social justice for much of your respective careers. And I wanted to start off the conversation with that because, To me, you know, the issues of justice and incarceration and the prison industrial complex represent a kind of front line in discussions of resistance and social justice that doesn't often touch a lot of people's lives. I mean, if you're not in that system or you don't have a family member or a friend in that system, you may not be aware of how pervasive this stuff is and what a big industry it can be. So you turn on the news and you hear, well, the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world, and it just sounds like a statistic. And it's actually mind-boggling that we 
incarcerate more people than, say, North Korea or something like that. So I, I guess to begin, could each of you give me a sense or give our listeners a sense of how you came into this work and what initially instigated your passion for the work that you do? I got into this in a spirit of resistance, actually, during the Bush administration, which felt a lot like the start of the Trump administration, actually. And especially uh, with the launch of the Iraq war, I felt the need to, in my professional capacity as an architect, talk about what was wrong with that. But it didn't seem like the war was exactly an architectural issue. But within the peace movement, there was a big awareness of what we called the war abroad and the war at home being counterparts. That, that the problem in American society that licensed the Iraq war was a willingness to use violence as an instrument of policy and racism directed towards black and brown people who weren't like us. Abroad, those were, you know, Iraqi people, Muslims, and at home, those are by and large, you know, our communities of color. Through the peace movement, I learned about uh, mass incarceration, what a big problem it was from other activists who were working on that issue. And then it seemed like there was a strong connection to architecture because mass incarceration had been accomplished through the building of thousands of prisons and jails across the United States. And those are buildings. And that was something that architects had a stake in. So that was kind of how I learned about the issue and how I figured out that I and ADPSR could be involved in it. I came into it, I would say, through a, uh, a solution that I had become aware of rather than the problem. Uh, it was um, 2006 and I had recently returned to the United States from working overseas for, for a long time. And it was Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and I went to a church in West Oakland and heard uh, Fania Davis and Angela Davis, civil rights activists, get up and speak about restorative justice. And I had never heard of restorative justice before um, as an as a ancient system of addressing harm uh, that was rooted in accountability and listening and healing and reparation rather than the values of our punitive model, which is about retribution and punishment. And so for me, it was a kind of a wake up call and, and a light, like a beacon that I could follow as a potential solutions uh, that I could participate in. So the question emerged was, well, how do we design for that system rather than as architects be supporting and propping up the prison industrial complex through the building of that infrastructure? If we truly believe that our profession is about re-envisioning a future and designing and manifesting society's values, what happens when we start to look at systems that are, are based and rooted in a very different kind of set of values? Uh, what does that look like? So that was the, the start of a, a long journey of investigation of that. For our listeners, um, could you define restorative justice? What, what is that? Now, restorative justice is, is a philosophy that says when a crime has been committed or when there's been a harm done, it is a breach of relationship. You know, it's not a crime against the state. Actual people were harmed. Community was harmed. Individuals were harmed. And that the needs of those who have been harmed must be addressed first. Uh, and that those who have done the harm or committed the crime have an obligation to make amends and potentially repair the harm if possible. So, you know, these are very intense dialogues that occur maybe over many, many hours, can, can happen repeatedly over months, uh, where all parties come together to address the harm and create a plan at the end to address uh, the conduct and the offense and potentially repair the breach and allow for those who did the harm to return to their community unstigmatized, understanding that, you know, hurt people hurt people, 
and that people are more than just uh, the bad things they do, and that there's an opportunity for people to transform. And what we find through the process is that those who've been harmed have reduced levels of PTSD, that there's a significant reduction in violent reoffending, that people don't commit violent crimes again, and they are able to return and live amazing, fulfilled lives, uh, and everyone is actually restored. So it's, it's amazing. It's a very, very different system. You know, a lot of our, our guests come on here and they tell a story about the, the sort of journey from ethic to architecture. And, you know, they kind of developed a set of principles and out of that came a practice or, or you know, forms of, of architecture. What does restorative justice start to look like along that path? Is that a form of, of architecture that's recognizable or is that a process? Is it both? It could be both. It's very new. You know, I mean, I've done some research uh, nationally on what spaces of restorative justice look like. Uh, depending, it's very cultural. It's very reference to the cultural practice itself and that specific process. There are many kinds of restorative justice processes. So, you know, in terms of a formal sense, if you look at the Far Nui of New Zealand, where they do their processes, the, that building type has a specific form related to their spiritual and cultural beliefs and that specific process. You look at Fumble Talk in Sierra Leone, there's a, just a tree. Right? So the, the process, you just designate a space first, and that's it's a tree where you do the process. So I think that as we, as a, a community, begin to develop restorative justice architecture, it'll really emerge around what these places and spaces look like. I think the process matters. And so it's really getting a process that gets you to an outcome. It's, you know, we're always concerned about form, 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 but the form is is not where you begin. Yes, they, they'd probably be round circular spaces. You see some of those in indigenous First Nations people in North America for their peacemaking spaces. So that may be a, a kind of space, but there's far more criteria that need to be considered more than form when you are starting to make restorative justice spaces like neutrality and in the embedding of nature um, and spaces to cool off, you know, understanding how to mitigate fight or flight and freeze responses, that kind of thing. So a lot of environmental psychology is involved. It's a real contrast to um, the courtroom, part because of what Deanna was saying, that restorative justice is about the person who's harmed. And in the American legal system, if somebody commits a crime, if, you know, if I assaulted you, Eric, it would be the people of California versus Raphael, not Eric's not even in the picture. And prosecutors often try and usurp the position of the victim and they create structures and systems to kind of represent the victim. But victims are really not allowed to speak for themselves and aren't centered. Instead, what's centered is state power as the fact that I offended the people of California through that action. And when you go to a courtroom, what you see is the seal of the government on the wall at the far end of the room. Right below it is a judge in a special uniform sitting three to five steps higher than everybody else in the room. There's, there's like there's no space in that I think people are familiar with that uses architecture to recreate the hierarchy of power as clearly as a traditional American courtroom. And that doesn't matter if you're doing it in a traditional style with, you know, walnut wood wainscoting or a modernist style like the Morphosis Courthouse in uh, Oregon. Those power relationships are embedded in the space in an intense way. And if you tried to like do restorative justice process like Deanna was talking about, which is often done in a circle where everybody's treated as an equal in a courtroom. It would be a gigantic failure. You can just see how the space would obstruct the equality you're trying to create and the outcome you're trying to find. And we don't even have spaces that we know of that really work to support it. That's why Deanna's research into the design process is so important. If we're going to really transform things and find a new way of relating to each other, 
in these really painful moments where we need to really heal people, we definitely need something new. And there's a tremendous need for research and a process that's research oriented instead of just form finding. It's really what's needed today. So let's draw out that process. And I guess, you know, thinking about the process that you outline, Deanna, you know, moving from a certain sort of value system, certain sort of ethic, you know, forward into some type of architecture, which is still being discovered. If we reverse that process and we take a look at the court and prison systems that we have today and sort of reverse engineer a process, how did we get here? How did we get to a point where, um, you know, the design community has essentially been complicit in the manufacturing of this prison industrial complex? I mean, what set of values specifically do we need to unpack and subsequently discard in order to move forward with a new way of thinking about healing? The, the first thing that springs to mind, I'm not sure it's the most important, but Today, in recent years, once ADPSR started our camp, our prison design boycott for alternatives to incarceration, where we asked designers to pledge not to design more prisons because mass incarceration was such a big problem, a lot of designers came to us and said, yeah, I don't like, you know, racism. I'm not part of the prison industrial system, but isn't the solution designing a better prison? Hmm. There's a mentality that a lot of designers have, which is not badly intentioned, but which feels like the solution is always a building. For a long time, I didn't understand that I, mean, I would just push back on that because I would, it's like, no, we don't need more prisons. We don't need more. But there are solutions that are buildings, which, of course, is what Deanna is trying to design and other people who work on, say, affordable housing or who are doing kind of neighborhood revitalization, especially in, you know, underserved communities. But the idea that a better prison could be the solution, that shows a kind of lack of awareness about the way that racism functions in the United States. Because even if you built a nicer building, the people who are in it are still the same. And they still lack that sense of connection and compassion for people who have been on the wrong side of the law. There's a real willingness to judge people by the worst thing they've ever done, to identify them with that event, to discard and, and to not give anybody a second chance. So though that kind of hostility and lack of compassion really needs to be challenged. I would also just add in terms of how did we get here piece. I mean, partially from my point of view of uh, going to school, architecture school in the 90s and, you know, wanting to be an architect in the 80s and coming up through through this sort of shift and and what the demographic we were seeing even in architecture school and then moving into a professional world is that, you know, we predominantly have white males in the profession, particularly in the leadership positions, and their perspective and point of view is often uh, goes unchallenged, and we don't have a lot of diversity and, uh, and different points of view coming and experiences coming into the profession. And when that happens, I think, uh, like with most monolithic systems, uh, there's very little understanding and thinking outside of the rigid structures that we have in place. And so these systems are, are have been around for a little while. They're not as old as restorative justice, but uh, this this European model that we have now of, of criminal justice has been around for some time and people are very committed to it and it's what they know. And when you don't have diversity in any system, it begins to fail uh, and it only serves the very few. So, you know, architects are hopefully waking up, especially young folks as they start to realize, hey, I don't wanna work for the wealthy and the powerful. I wanna do something that has more meaning. And in that, in that transformation I see happening, that's very exciting. And I think there's now capacity to, to, to get us away from where we have been, but it also really, really requires some real introspection as individuals, understanding white privilege, 
where you're coming from as you go into different communities. Why are you doing what you're doing? And so uh, there's some really interesting things also happening in our profession uh, where I see a few folks starting to educate people. Like, here is how to actually practice. Here's how to actually do the work and challenge systems in a way that's responsible and thoughtful. You're listening to Social Design Insights. We hope you've been enjoying these thoughts from Deanna Van Buren and Raphael Sperry about design and justice. But we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to be talking about more specifics about the avenues of change, both institutional and personal. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with Deanna Van Buren of Designing Justice, Designing Spaces, and Raphael Sperry of Architects, Designers, and Planners for Social Responsibility about their origins in the field of social design and how some of our prison industrial complex came to be, notably enabled by the design community. Let's rejoin the conversation. Deanna, is the, the answer to that, does it lie in school? Does it lie in pedagogy? I think it has to start there. I mean, Raphael and I have been talking at ADPSR about the fact that, you know, what we are seeing now is a lot of schools having competitions to design a better prison or Frank Gehry coming out being like, we can design this prison better and running design studios at some of our universities that are are really supposed to be the thought leaders, you know, where we're really generating Mm -hmm. that. It's very sad. And so I think that uh, we've been trying to find a way to get to universities to talk to them about like, here is where we could potentially start to make some changes. But but the, the the academy is pretty entrenched in their way of thinking, their way of operating. There's a lot of ego there, uh, a lot of hierarchy. People are still committed to the old pedagogy. I don't like even the language we use in architecture school, juries, critics. I mean, really, it's <laughs> the whole thing is, it even the same language as the criminal justice system. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I was just it's thinking amazing. the same thing. It's <laughs> like, really? But that culture has to change, too, the way that we teach, the way what we are teaching, the things that we're reading, the architecture we're looking at, uh, how we view the world and what our role is has got to change. It has to start in the academy. Education is one of the few times in somebody's professional career where you really get to talk about ethics and where you're encouraged to think about the larger shape of the profession, or at least where you could be. I think a lot of schools don't do a great job of that. They're actually very vocational. And even within that, they're so narrowly focused on design, some of them, that even some of the technical skill that we should have gets overlooked. But the other piece of that is to take the time in school to reflect on what does it mean to be an architect? What is the value of design? Because in commercial practice, there isn't usually time to do that kind of stuff. So yeah, and and schools are supposed to teach professional practice. I, when I give a lecture to students, which I've done many times by Skype or in person or what have you, And I explained that protecting public health, safety, and welfare is the foundation of having a professional license as an architect. And that's the profession is committed to that as part of the bargain that we make with society by which they give us a collective monopoly over architectural services, which underlies our ability to charge for services and make a living simply being in this profession. I have yet to encounter a student who'd heard that before I told them. And I'm just there usually as, you know, one guest lecturer for an hour in their three or four years of architecture school. And nobody else had mentioned that. And that's so important to understand that whatever you do in architecture, health, safety and welfare, your commitment to the public good 
is at the core of what you do. That has to come first. If you sacrifice that, you've cut off your entire professional standing. It amazes me that that I mean, I've met faculty members who hadn't actually grasped that. And they're supposed to be teaching this material. So, yeah, there definitely needs to be work in the academy. <laughs> so let, let's expand on the the health, safety and, and public welfare question. And, uh, you know, I always bring guests on the show to, to answer the questions that, that get stuck in my head. But, it, you know, if the profession of architecture is, is so committed to health, safety and public welfare, why isn't something like solitary confinement prima facie a, a contradiction of that mandate? How is this rationalization happening in, in the public discourse? Well, I think the narrow way that people in, in architecture work on prison projects kind of recapitulates the same larger social dynamic in which people refuse to recognize the fundamental humanity of people in prison. And they say they're different. They're not part of us anymore because the rationale behind designing a prison is we're protecting the public from these dangerous people. But by saying that, you're saying those people are not part of the public anymore. And architects are basically saying the people who were imprisoned in my building are no longer members of the public who are entitled to the standard of health, safety and welfare. They're being put there in order to give everybody else health, safety and welfare by keeping them, these dangerous people away. So I think that's how that can be rationalized. The problem that is, especially when you're trying to accomplish something like restorative justice or addressing racism in our society to say, well, anybody who's been labeled a felon is no longer a person. We, we can't, we can't continue to live like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I, I just don't get it. If we can agree that, you know, a system that's structurally racist is antithetical to public welfare, how do we continue to keep working on these projects? I don't think everybody agrees with that. Like, I, I don't think that everybody's in agreement on that point that, uh, to start with. I mean, we, we are. <laughs> Which point, the, the point that, you know, the prison system is... That is structurally racist. I, I, I've had many mm. conversations with people who don't believe that, who refuse to believe that. And even if they do, they, they think it's, oh, maybe that's a little bit of a problem, but uh, that people who, who do things that are quote unquote bad should be incarcerated. Uh, they deserve what they get to some degree. And I think they're under the illusion, as many of us are, is actually that the system impacts an incredible amount of people that we often know and that people hide their uh, relationship to the criminal justice system due to shame. There's a lot of shame around it. As often when I speak, people, students come up and be like, oh, my God, my dad is incarcerated. My brother is incarcerated. So it's an interesting phenomenon of this viewpoint that we continue to hold and the shame that it creates so that people don't even talk about it. I also think that architects who work with the prison system, that many of them who I've talked to are well aware of the problems and even some of the racism, but I'm not sure they understand it as structural racism. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of them feel like, sure, there's huge problems, but I'm working with this client who has better intentions than the average and wants to do things a certain way that I can help them with. You know, and when you work with individual people, you're not inclined to see them as racist and you don't see their racist behavior. Or maybe even they don't display that. That can build comfort because on a human level, yeah, this particular warden is a good person, you know, because the, and they're not looking at the system. They're just looking at their little job within it. So accepting that it's structurally racist, like you said, Eric, is actually really important and is quite different from trying to identify the racism in any one project. Because even if there's no racism in the project, that has such a fundamental problem that you can't solve it that way. 
But there's always racism, right? I, I, I always challenge folks on, you know, we are all racist. We all struggle with uh, unconscious bias or explicit bias. And that, you know, unless we're willing to look at our own uh, racist viewpoints, however deep they may be or, or embedded they might be as, as just a practice that we as a nation need to begin, then it's very hard for us to talk about things at this level and the work that we do. So I know that there are some groups looking to do this work with architecture students and adults. And the first thing that they start with is oppression and understanding the structurally racist viewpoints that are going on and also starting with yourself. So it's a hard one. It's tough stuff. Yeah, it seems like it. And I think, you know, I certainly encountered people where I get optimistic that, you know, at a grassroots level, at a, a community level, at a person to person level, there could be a raising of, of awareness. Is that how, is that how it's going to happen? Do we need to even be thinking about institutional change? I mean, we've already talked about the academy and there's also, you know, the APA and the AIA and the AIGA and this sort of thing. Are those institutions relevant to this conversation or should our designers can focus their attention on making change at a grassroots level. Well, I don't think it's an either or. ADPSR has been really focused on AIA for some time because I do think that there's a relevance there. And I think it works two ways. One is people who don't recognize the personal connection between themselves and the prison industrial system. It's hard to have that kind of grassroots conversation with them if they're just doing run of the mill commercial architecture. But AIA is one place where you might find those people. And if you can make the case to talk to them about that issue because it's an issue for AIA, then you can get their attention and engage them in a conversation, which is really important. The prison system is so destructive and it impacts everybody who's an American citizen or a resident here and even people in other parts of the world. A lot of privileged white people in particular don't see that. They're sheltered from that. So this is a way to break through that and get them to recognize that and hopefully raise awareness outside of a grassroots setting that's structured about that. So for one, AIA creates these person-to-person -person opportunities, but also it's a point of reference for everybody in the profession. And their code of ethics is the only code of ethics for architects across the United States. And it's actually one that people look at in other parts of the world as well. In some ways, it's actually quite good. So it seemed like a really valuable opportunity to make a statement that was not just a person-to-person -person statement, but one that was on behalf of the whole profession. Uh, and not just a statement, but also a binding commitment to stand for human rights. That's something that ADPSR has been asking AIA to do for a long time. And uh, I think slowly they're coming around. So that's been a long conversation and it's not over, but I know that people there have learned quite a bit from us. And I, I believe that minds are changing. You're listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We'd like to thank our guests of the week, Deanna Van Buren of Designing Justice, Designing Spaces, and Raphael Sperry of Architects, Designers, and Planners for Social Responsibility. They'll be back next week for a continuation of our conversation, and we'll be discussing more specific tactics for how to move from ethic to design and back again. We'll see if Deanna and Raphael's optimism can overwhelm my cynicism on this issue. Spoiler alert, it does. It really does. Tune in next Thursday. You can find links to the works of Designing Justice, Designing Spaces, and ADPSR on our website at www.socialdesigninsights.com. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can write to me, eric at socialdesigninsights.com. That's E-R-I-C at socialdesigninsights.com. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Curry Stone Foundation. That's Curry Stone FDN. 
for all the latest news on social impact design. Thank <laughs> you.